I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. We we are going to be talking about the false teachings of Brian Zond today. Um, this is kind of a big deal. This I can't even overstate how big of a deal this actually is. Some people are going to think I'm overreacting to this gentleman. Um, I assure you I'm not. Please allow me to explain. Some of the most blasphemous and deceitful things I've ever heard are coming out of the teaching ministry of this pastor, Brian Zahn, and the book he's written. The rot of it goes all the way to the core, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foundational truths of Christianity. But the thing is, it's really crafty. Brian Zond, if nothing else, he's a rhetorician. He's maybe not a theologian, but he's very much a rhetorician. He's using words to, to try to confuse and manipulate individuals. I'm just calling it like I see it here. Um, so I'm not planning on ranting here. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm bothered by it. I'm irritated by it, uh, I think in a good way. Uh, but I'm not going to rant about it. I don't want to, in my irritation or anger, sin in that sense. Um, I'm going to explain. Here's what I'm doing for you. I'm explaining what's wrong with Zond, what specifically is wrong with this guy and his teaching, so that you can you know, work your way through the theology and the rhetoric that he is spreading. That is, It certainly has a foothold in Missouri. It has a foothold in Canada, so I'm told. And it's getting a bigger foothold in other places as well. He's partnered with uh, Paul Young, the author of The Shack. He's got endorsements from Rachel Held Evans and... Tony Jones and uh, Walter Brugman, Sarah Bisi, um, people who, Brian McLaren, who after reading this book, if they endorse it, they're on, they're on the naughty list when it comes to the gospel of Christ. It's pretty, pretty intense stuff. So I'm going to give you some much needed clarity today. Um, I'll just announce real quick. I will not be able to do uh, the live uh, Q and A at the end of today, because this is going to be a while. Like I'm, I've worked my way through his whole book. I want to share with you guys the content I found the things that will be helpful. That's not only helpful for those of you who follow my channel regularly, who would watch me kind of no matter what I did right now, but helpful for someone a year from now, five years from now, who Googles Brian Zond and the word theology or something. And they're going, I, this guy's wrong, but I need help seeing where. So I really want to get through the material. Uh, let me, let me tell you because it's, uh, it's about this guy right here. This is who I'm talking about. This is Brian Zond. Uh, Brian's <laughs> Jesus Zond. <laughs> That was supposed to be for later. Anyway, Brian, his name is actually Brian Zahn, not Jesus Zahn. My bad. Spoiler. Um, but anyhow, Brian Zahn is the author of this book right here. Several books. I, I actually have a copy. And uh, it centers in the hands of a loving God. Sounds nice, but it's not. Like most of his theology sounds nice, but it's not. And um, and Brian Zahn is actually a pastor of a church in uh, called Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's, like I said, the author of several books. But let me give you a quick overview of some of his views on things so that before I get into the weeds, you know kind of where we're headed. Um, he thinks that the doctrine that Jesus, he was punished for the sins of man, that that is an evil, evil, satanic doctrine. That's... That's what Brian Zahn thinks, um, that, uh, that, that people like me only believe such things because of my own bloodlust and my addiction to violence. This is what the guy writes in his book. Like this is, I am, I'm a terrible person based because I believe that doctrine. The, he believes the old Testament has terrible atrocities that are indefensible that are done in the name of God. And that the authors of the old Testament were just wrong. Like God didn't really command that. They were just mistaken. They were just confused. They just couldn't get over their own addiction to violence or something. Um, he thinks that the gospel is a gospel of forgiveness without faith 
and you just have to kind of be a good person. That's, that's my understanding of his gospel presentation. And um, there's a lot more to be said, but I'm going to give you, uh, and the Bible's full of contradictions. He thinks that too. So, and he's a pastor, mind you, you'd think I was responding to an atheist this whole time or something, but this is a pastor. Um, the first chapter of Brian's book reveals his whole hand. And he basically has a three-step plan for getting you to change your Christianity over for the Brian Zond version of Christianity. And let me just give you the overview. And then we're going to go through it all in, in detail. So step one is he offers a straw man of Christian beliefs to make you feel uncomfortable. So if you've read Brian's book or you've heard some of his sermons and other sermons like this, I've heard sermons like this from other people that are similar. They're not the same as Brian, but they're similar from guys like Greg Boyd, who shares certain things similar to this. Um, uh, I've even heard from uh, Bill Johnson, uh, from, uh, uh, I could name some other names as well, but basically this is something you'll hear. A straw man, a fake version of Christianity is set up and it's made to look as ugly as possible. Um, and, it, and then they shame you for it. Like you're, you're shameful. Uh, if you believe this, if you have this version of God in your head that they describe as like the monster God, the evil God, the terrible God, the, the petty God. And so you go, oh, I don't want that. Um, then, then he, step two, after he puts the straw man and he says, if you, if you hold a normal Christian belief, it's actually this evil thing. Then step two is he provides an idol to replace the straw man with. And he basically says, look, if you don't want to be that straw man, that, that thing I just painted you as, the only solution is to embrace my new, my new rules for Christians, my new theology for Christianity. And that's what he does for step two. Then step three, he's got to find a way around the Bible. Uh, the truth is the Bible, like completely and utterly uh, undoes the work that Zahn does with all of his stuff because it's going to refute him. There's the actual specific texts of scripture that will go against what Brian says. Um, so what he'll do is he'll give you a new way of interpreting the Bible to keep you from realizing how unbiblical his teachings are. Um, finally, at the very end of the book, he, he starts, he doesn't clearly explain it, but he gives a false gospel and a false Jesus and a, a self-righteous hypocritical indignation toward those who don't follow all the stuff that he has so far said they're just they're petty they're they're um they're self they're self-righteous they're 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 the ones with the problem not him okay so i'm going to get into the details now um uh just so you guys know this is the reason why i read this book it's kind of interesting story here uh there's 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 a secret club of a few apologists and we get together and uh, we just started doing this recently and we read bad books and talk about them. And I was like, I've got to do a book review of this thing on my actual channel for the sake of the people he's influencing. Um, okay, let's get into it. The first straw man, step one is producing a straw man, right? A fake version of Christianity. So the first straw man he produces is in chapter one of the book. And chapter one of the book, he opens up by talking about a um, an old sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, an old Puritan sermon. And and that's where he begins his process of trying to attack Christianity. He won't go to scripture. In fact, he doesn't go to scripture very often. It's usually in a footnote and it's usually referenced very out of context. But he quotes select portions of this Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. Some of you may have heard it. Most of us aren't really very familiar with it, actually. And he does this to make a repulsive straw man. He trivializes this after he explains how this, there's a sermon where he's talking about how we're like, God hates us and we're like spiders. He's dangling over hell and we're like venomous serpents and God loathes us. This is all from the sermon, right? We're not reading scripture here. We're reading a sermon. We're reading pieces pulled out of a sermon that most people my age have never heard and not been influenced by. But Brian, he thinks we all have and, and it, that it's, it's the American gospel in a sense. 
Um, so let me quote to you from page six in his book. He says, as a pastor, I can understand being so fed up with a congregation that you want to call them a bunch of loathsome insects that God is ready to fling into the fire. But still, is it true? So this straw man is this, that if you preach to people that there's coming judgment, that your maybe your secret motive as a pastor would be you're just mad at them and you're irritated and you're venting your wrath on your congregation and pretending it's God's wrath that's coming upon them. So that's the kind of straw man stuff. He's not, he doesn't really ask, is it true? He says the question, but he never tries to figure it out. Um, he describes the idea of hell, the idea of hell as, he's a pastor, as in page five of his book, quote, welcome to God's torture chamber, the Almighty's eternal Auschwitz. So the word torture is used, a heavy weighted word I would not use to describe hell at all. Um, and Auschwitz, Auschwitz. So he's, he's basically saying, if you think that God, if, if eternal conscious torment is a real thing, then your, your version of God is like Hitler, um, except worse because it's eternal. Um, so this is, he starts off the book with a bang, right? There's no, no holds barred. He just goes right into it here. Um, now, if you don't know the scriptures, then you might think that the way he's describing God, you know, is accurate to the, to the Christian view and not realize as a straw man. He never really engages with a biblical view. He never really engages with biblical Christianity. He just engages with his straw man because it's how he will get you to accept this false version of Christianity. So then he paints everyone with this view that, that it's not just Jonathan Edwards, it's everyone. So he says on page six, it's regret regrettable that this sermon has shaped the American vision of God for nearly three centuries. That's, I mean, that's, no, it hasn't. That sermon hasn't shaped the American vision of God. Can I show you what shapes my vision of God? It's the Bible, like, right? It's the word of God. It does. And um, that's my vision of God. I see there most clearly in the person of Christ, but I see it through the accurate, true communication of the word of God. Anyhow, um, I've never even heard the sermon, never read it. The only portions of the sermon I've read are the stuff he quotes in his chapter. And probably for most of you, that's the case. He talks again about hell as though those who will go to hell are, quote, in page eight, tortured in hell forever. That it's, so again, this is weighted language. He's meant to, he's demonizing the idea of, uh, of, of hell being eternal. Um, then he says in page nine, after setting up the straw man, is God accurately represented when depicted as a faceless, remorseless, white giant whose anger fuels the raging flames of hell? You know, I've taught a lot of sermons, a lot of, a lot of Bible studies, I don't remember ever saying that God was a giant, white, faceless, remorseless monster whose anger fuels the raging flames of hell. Like, I just don't remember, you know, maybe, maybe I've lost it in the shuffle. No, of course not. Nobody's teaching this, right? He has to dig back as far in history as he can to find something like this and then cobble together the ugliest version of it he can and then present that as though, if you don't want to be that, you've got to be like me, Brian Zond. So, um... He even includes himself. He says that he was a guy that used to used to teach this kind of version of hell. And so he says uh, on, uh, oh, I don't have the page number, but I'll quote him to you. He says, I saw angry God preaching. Angry God. Now this is a hyphenated term for God now. God's angry God. Um, I saw angry God preaching as a legitimate means of scaring people into accepting Jesus. The end justified the means. Getting people to respond to the altar call justified preaching a mean God. Threatened them with an angry God so they would accept a merciful Jesus. A kind of good cop, bad cop technique of evangelism. Now here's where I, I, I just want to kind of say, like, if, if that's accurate, right? If Brian really thought 
God's mean, and I'll, I'll tell my congregation how mean God is, and God's the bad cop, the father, and then Jesus is the good cop. If that's really what you did, then you were violating Christianity, Brian, and you should be embarrassed, and you should be repent, but what he's really doing is he's putting this on all of us. I've never done that, ever done that. And people I hear who preach the gospel, even the idea of eternal judgment, they don't do that. I, I mean, they don't. You can, oh, you can find Westboro Baptist Church. Guess what, guys? They're not part of the Baptist churches. They're like not even affiliated with anybody because people don't accept that kind of stuff. Um, so that's uh, just the tip of the iceberg. Let's look at his example of slavery. Um, so one of the things that Brian likes wants to do is go to the example of slavery in the Old Testament as a way of trying to get you to basically reject the teaching of the Old Testament um, so that you can take his new theology instead. But listen to this. He's actually going to tell us a story about how Brian went to a camp and this, what, he, what I'm going to share with you, this video, I'll play you a clip of it because I found clips from him doing his teaching and stuff. And this is an interview in particular. Brian actually talks about how he uh, in my terms, he tricks a bunch of young kids at a camp, kids at a camp, into rejecting the Bible by distorting what it teaches on the topic of slavery so that they will be repulsed by it. Let's listen in. The Bible itself is on the quest to discover the Word of God. So, for example, for example, and I did this with, with our kids at youth camp last week. I did two lectures on what is the deal with the Bible. And I start off with, uh, I hold up my Bible and I say, now this is a Bible, children. <laughs> this is not a trick Bible. This is, you know, this is just, you know, this is a regular Bible. And mm -hmm. I said, okay, here's the Bible. Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. When a slave owner strikes a male or female slave with a rod, and the slave dies immediately, the owner shall be punished. But if the slave survives a day or two, there is no punishment, for the slave is the owner's property. <laughs> and I add, and, and yeah. so I, and I said, okay, you see what this is saying here. Slave owner beats one of their slaves to death. They die immediately. Well, you know, there's going to be some punishment. It's not spelled out what it is, possibly some fine or something. But if the slave owner with a stick beats a male or female slave within an inch of their life and they survive a day or two and then die. Well, after all, the slave is the slave owner's property. And so there's no punishment. So I start off with that and I say, all right, how many of you agree with that? Well, of course, none of them agree with it. Yep. How many of you say, in fact, I say, no, that's wrong. Raise your hand. And they all raise their hand. And I say, you should disagree with that. But now we're going to have to talk about how as Christians we do that. I mean, when, when a verse starts off with, when a slave owner is like, okay, you just lost me right there. Mm. So, look, 13-year-old kids at a church youth camp have a superior moral vision, at least in regard to the institution of slavery, than the Bible does. Allow me to explain <laughs> what he just did. Um, I would raise my hand too. I disagree with that. That's wrong. But I would say it's wrong on two levels, right? It's wrong on one level because it's morally wrong. Two, because it's not what the Bible's actually saying. Because Brian, like every every skeptic I've ever had a, a back and forth talk with on this issue, they don't understand these simple passages. 
on these topics. So let's look at the passage um, right about here. Let's see if it pops up for us. Let me resize. As usual, I'm like preparing and studying right till the last minute. So some of this little tech stuff I, uh, I forget to do. And then I'm going like, oops. Okay, I'm just going to increase the font. This is the passage that he quoted. Let's look at it a little bit more in detail. Okay. Uh, first thing, okay, Exodus, this is, this is what's called case law. So this is, if this situation happens, here's how you handle it. Um, can I say one thing about case law? Case law is not endorsing the situations that it's making laws for. It's not saying this is a good thing, right? It's, it's instead making laws because these situations happen. This is what happens. And when it does do this, that's what case law does. Case law is not about the approval of these behaviors. Exodus 21, 20, it says when a man strikes his slave, male or female with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not to be avenged for the slave is his money. Um, this is the ESV translation. The, the, the idea here is this. Um, if you go up a couple verses, you'll see there's specific commands for if two guys are fighting and, and basically one man or they're arguing and one guy like strikes another and hurts them and about how the man's going to pay to take care of the man. So then they go, the question arises, but what if, what if the one he injures is, is a slave? What happens then? So let's read it in context. And by the way, we're slavery here. Don't think early American slavery. That, that does not fit the context. Um, under biblical commands, early American slave traders would receive the death penalty. There would never have been such a slave trade at all. Um, it's just, we got to get that out of our heads. Uh, the word slave, I, I feel, is even wrong to use because of what we're thinking of when we say it. But anyhow. So verse 18, when, a men, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die, but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Clear of what? Well, the death penalty, the guy didn't die. So the one who struck him won't die, but there's still something to do. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time. He shall have him thoroughly healed. So the guy who injured the other, uh, he made it out alive. So I'm not going to get the death penalty but I am going to have to pay for the, the, the days he couldn't work and pay for whatever the cost of his healing is, however long that might take. Then how does that apply that same situation to someone when they're a slave? Well, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, well, this isn't approving of striking a slave, is it? Any more than men, if men quarrel, is it okay to strike them? No, it's case lots. If it happens, not it's okay. Um, so when a man strikes his slave, male or female with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. That word avenged, and you, you, I welcome you to look it up in the, in the Hebrew and look up how this word is used in the Levitical law and in Exodus in particular, right? That word is used to mean the death penalty so that if a, a, a master kills his slave, the master dies. Life for life, it means that the... <laughs> how does Brian not see this? It means that the, the life of, of the servant or slave in this scenario is equally valuable as the life of the owner or the master, or the boss, or whatever you want to call him. Equal value. There's nothing like this in the ancient Near East. This one law gives gives more uh, human rights to, to someone in a slavery situation at that time than anyone else uh, that we're aware of in the culture. So if he survives a day or two, is it that nothing happens? Well, no, it's he shall not be avenged, or he won't be killed, just like the, the two men who quarreled, and the guy survived and got out and walked around. Okay, well, he was okay. So he won't be get the death penalty. What instead happens? Well, let's let's look down and see. It depends. It's not no punishment happens, um, 
Verse 26, same chapter, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Eyes, eyes or teeth. Does that mean he can break his arm and the slave doesn't go free? Well, no, of course not. This is, this is meant to be, here's a sample. If the guy, you know, breaks his tooth or damages his eye, like my eyeball is actually damaged physically. Basically, there's some kind of permanent damage to my body as a result of some sort of issue. So you beat me, I survived, but I've, I, I broke my arm. Um, I have a limp. Uh, I'm alive, but I have a limp. Okay, well, I go free. This is actually really good news for the servant. They're not, they're not to be under the bondage of that master. They, any, it would be debt slavery. So anything they owed the person is wiped free. So it's not like he pays for just a broken arm or something, but rather, no matter how much money the servant owed the master, he goes for free. This elevates the right of the slave. Does Brian uh, see this? No. Does he care? I don't know. Does he, he says he loves the Bible as I read his book. He talks greatly about how he reads through the Bible and he's read through it so many times and he'd wear out his Bible every year and have to get a new binding on it. Well, like he seemed to never pay attention to Exodus 21. Um, but more, more egregious than that is he misrepresented this text to a bunch of children at a camp as he does in his book, as he does in his teaching. That's not what the text says, but he's got to demonize the scriptures to get you to raise your hand and say, I disagree with that. That's wrong. Except what you're disagreeing with is Brian's version of the Bible. It's not the actual scriptures themselves. Um, and one more thing, I'll just say this. Brian's going to appeal to Jesus as the one who can change the way we view the Bible. Well, that's that's not how quite how it is. But, but here is something that, that Christ uh, shared uh, Matthew nineteen six that will help us with the topic of understanding uh, and perhaps perhaps slavery in particular. Jesus says about marriage that that, that um that when you become marriage when you get married you become one the two become one what therefore God has joined together let not man separate so Jesus is like marriage is a life covenant the two are connected God spiritually unites them the two are one and um and so they say to him well then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away see they're going. Hey, didn't Moses in the law say it would say that a, a husband could give a certificate of divorce to his wife? Well, that had to do with protecting the rights of the woman so that she couldn't just be kicked to the curb. But, but Jesus explains the reason why. Why was a law in there regulating something that God doesn't want us to do? Well, Jesus answers, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus makes it pretty clear here that this is not the goal of God. The fact that in the law they're regulating sinful behaviors does not make those sinful, sinful behaviors appropriate or good. It may represent simply the fact that no matter what God said, they were going to rebel in, this, in these areas that we're going to do wrong. And so he does things to protect whoever, whoever will be victimized by those things. All the laws about slavery are elevating these slaves' rights. Um, Anyway, I've got I've got a video on slavery. You can Google it and look it up. But but there's an example of of Brian's um, just utter distortion of the scripture in front of a of, of a of a camp full of kids, and he's laughing about it. and And he says that even 13 year olds can tell that the Bible's morally corrupt here. What a shame! What a shame! So um, that's his example from slavery. Shame is his constant thing. Uh, Brian's on as you read his, his material, or maybe perhaps you've gone to his his church in Missouri. Uh, shame is his constant go-to device. It gets you to abandon your position. Uh, let me read to you something he said in his book. He says, sometimes the Bible is like a Rorschach test. That's those inkblot tests. He says, our interpretation of the text reveals more about ourselves than about God. 
So this is, he uses this to leverage against you. So if you say, um, hey, I believe that God really does have wrath upon sin and there's a future day of judgment. And he just looks at you and says, no, you must really be a wrathful guy. You must really be a hateful woman to think that. Like, because you're just, you're seeing the, you're seeing in the Bible what is really in you. And you're like, but I was just reading the text and that's what it said. And he, but no, no, he doesn't do this. But I think this is almost Freudian of him because that's what he does with the Bible. He just reads himself into the text and we'll come into more of that later. Um, so shame is his go-to and, uh, and then he presents the, the straw man version. And then he's like, Hey, here's the idol. Here's what will replace this straw man, this fake evil version of Christianity that I've presented for you. And I'll say, if you want to escape that, you have to accept my version. Well, here's, here's what he does. Um, basically he's saying, uh, if you don't want the giant, angry, white, white, giant, white God, <laughs> who's, who's basically Hitler. If you don't want to, if you don't want to worship that God, then you need his version of Jesus and his version of God. And so Brian's on, he doesn't like sacrifice. And so his version of God doesn't like sacrifice either. He doesn't like the idea of substitutionary atonement. And so Brian's God doesn't like substitutionary atonement. And he calls it primitive child sacrifice, uh, primitive child sacrifice, the idea of Jesus on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He calls that primitive child sacrifice. Um, and you can see how he uses the words. He, it, they're not even correct words to describe things, but he uses them to mess with your emotions, basically. Um, he doesn't like the exclusivity of Christ. So, so in his, his version of Jesus, as I read through his book, you don't need Jesus exactly. You really just need to be loving. And even if you get cast out from God's presence, you only suffer that way until you decide you're going to love God now. And then, so everyone's eventually going to be okay is the implication of what he says. Um, he doesn't like God having wrath. So he says, quote, page 16 of his book, wrath, the wrath of God is a biblical metaphor. He actually says that if God was wrathful, really, truly wrathful, not as a metaphor, but actual wrath, it would be petty. It would be petty of God. And so that's the straw man. A wrathful God is a petty God, so you have to take the metaphor instead. So he's trying to get you to abandon uh, true Christianity, but without ever actually interacting with true Christianity. Um, he also doesn't like to think that, say, for instance, a nice Muslim could be condemned. So I'm going to read you an example of this from page 142 of his book. Um, now, some would say, hey... I'm with him on this. So let me, allow me just, just think it through. Let me read to you these uh, couple paragraphs from Brian's book. This is page 142, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And it's about Becky and Belkis. Becky is, is an, an annoying, probably white uh, Christian woman from America who, um, and then Belkis is a Muslim who's a really great lady. And so listen to his, it's so manipulative. I've just got to be honest. This is so manipulative. Um, Oh, yeah, it reminds me of someone I know. Okay, so let's try a thought experiment. Consider two women, we'll call them Becky and Belkis. They're imaginary women, but certainly representative of real people. Our imaginary women were born on the exact same day, March 5th, 1959. Becky was born in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Belkis was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. Because of the, their geography, Becky is a cultural Christian, and Belkis is a cultural Muslim. Now, we're going to, as you read on, you'll realize Belkis is a lot more than a cultural Muslim. Um, but I'll just keep reading. Unfortunately, Becky is a mean, judgmental, self-righteous Pharisee. You know the type. <laughs> you know the type. She holds me, guys. He's talking about me. Um, she holds her Christian faith with a kind of triumphalism that makes her insufferable to everyone outside her tiny fundamentalist tribe. 
She has boundless disdain for all who are unlike her politically, culturally, ethnically, and especially religiously. She holds Muslims in particular contempt. Belkis, on the other hand, uh, by the way, okay, we don't want to be Becky. We don't like Becky, right? Becky is um, a terrible human being, apparently. I, I mean, obviously she is. But the thing is that he'll probably act like act like that represents me because it's all straw men and represents you if you're a biblically faithful Christian, that you're some version of Becky. Okay, let's talk about Belkis. Um, Belkis, on the other hand, is a kind and generous soul. She's known throughout her neighborhood for her acts of charity, which is great, right? And I, are there Muslims like that? Yes, absolutely. So this could be very well so far a very real person. And she regularly cares for the poor and the sick. She's a devout Muslim. Devout Muslim. Okay, she's not a cultural Muslim. She's a devout Muslim. Worshiping God in the only way she knows within her cultural context. She loves God and she loves her neighbors. So she's she's a devout Muslim who holds to Islamic uh, teaching, yet she loves God. That's, that is a contradiction. I'll, I'll explain in a moment. Um, she loves God and she loves her neighbors. In a strange coincidence, these women who share the same birthday also die on the same day. What happens next? Is your theology such? This is the question, right? Does Belkis go to judgment, you know, Hades or, you know, depending on your theology here, right? Or does, uh, does, does they both go to heaven or Becky goes to, how does this, how does this work? So he says, what happens next? Is your theology such that you're forced to say that Becky is escorted to her finely appointed luxury mansion? Why Belkis is dragged away to a dark dungeon of eternal torture? Uh, of course it's a dark dungeon of eternal torture. Let's, let's use his, um, triggering terms, especially for 21st century, right? This is a monstrous, monstrous theology that is utterly contrary to the spirit of the gospel. He says that the idea that a devout, faithful Muslim woman who's really nice to her neighbors, the idea that she would be condemned, is opposed to the gospel. Think about that. I'll read on. The gospel is not the appalling claim that billions of people are fated to unending agony by a capricious God. Of course it's not. Nobody thinks it's that. Brian's on. Can you interact with actual Christianity? Please. Please. You're just demonizing people you don't like. You're mocking and making fun of people that, and then using that to get them to reject actual Christianity. He says, if you say, but only Jesus can save, I say yes and amen. And who are you to tell Jesus whom he can and cannot save? Are you going to tell Jesus he cannot save Belkis? Jesus can save, save whomever he wants. Jesus is Lord. Um, well, we all agree Jesus can save whoever he wants. But he's also told us exactly how he's going to do this. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, if you don't repent, you'll all likewise perish. I mean, Jesus, he is the only way. Receiving him, believing and trusting him, that's the way. He says it's contrary to the gospel that a devout Muslim woman would not be saved. But do you know Islam? See, when you say she's devout Muslim, you see her devout. That's a nice term, right? But but we say devout Muslim. I'm not thinking Muslim like I hate Muslims. I'm thinking Muslim like the theology and the doctrines, the beliefs of Islam, the practices. So in Islam, there's a sin called shirk. It's one of the worst things you can possibly do. How can you commit shirk? Well, I'll commit it right now in your presence. Jesus is the son of God. I have officially committed shirk. You know, I am, I'm, a, I'm, I'm hated by God now for, and I'm destined for judgment. You see, Islam is built on the idea of a rejection of Jesus. They reject that Jesus is Lord. They reject that he is God. They reject that he's the son of God. They reject that he was ever crucified and they absolutely reject the resurrection. So if you are 
a devout Muslim, it's a nice way of saying you reject Jesus, you reject the, the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ. And then he says, but Jesus can save her. What's going on here is this weird rhetorical gymnastics to avoid actual doctrine and teaching from scripture. But he thinks it doesn't matter exactly what the text says because he just looks at Jesus and Brian says, Jesus is just so nice. Of course he would be nice to Becky or Belkis. Of course he would. Um, so here we go. Let's let's get into step three. That's step one and step two. He, he offers a straw man. He presents us with an idol to accept instead of the straw man. Now we're getting into uh, step three. And this is how to get around that pesky thing called the Bible. Um, there's so many biblical passages, Old Testament, New Testament, and they're not the ones that he's demonizing. I'm talking about real teachings from the scripture, about, about how we can be saved, about what Jesus' death accomplished, about future judgment, about those types of things. Um, and he's got to find a way around it because he's going to be opening the Bible when he, when, he, when he tries to teach on Sunday mornings. He's got to find some method for avoiding all of the scriptures that contradict, blatantly contradict what he's teaching. So here's his method. In short, I'll give you the short version, then I'll give you some examples of it. Um, Jesus trumps the Bible. Jesus gives you permission to say that certain Bible passages are just wrong. That's the short version. These are my words, not his. He will never say it so plainly. He's a, he, he will always use rhetoric and poetry, and he'll answer you. It seems to me that sometimes things that could take one sentence to answer take like seven pages, and they're not fully answered. Um, so I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to simplify what he said, right? Uh, basically the Bible has been wrong about God. It's been in some places, it's been wrong about what God said when it says God says this, maybe God didn't quite say that and wrong about what God did. And to, to say this, he's got to do two things. He's got to say the Bible's got a bunch of contradictions and to Jesus, he supports this reinterpretation of the scripture. So we're going to talk about those two issues now. Um, Brian Zond says this on page 31 of his book about the Bible being full of contradictions. Or actually, before I read you the book, let me let me share with you another little video clip. Same interview um, that he had, and listen to what he says about how he will about how the Bible is not univocal. What it really means is the Bible contradicts itself. So let's listen in. So what we ha- first of all, the Bible is a is an unwieldy book. Mm. It's a thousand pages long written over well over a thousand years more like 2000 years 1500 maybe um and it is not univocal it has different opinions at different times on the same subject this is just to say in a nutshell he says, first of all, the Bible contradicts itself. That's like the step, step one. You've got to get this out first because um, if the Bible doesn't contradict itself, then all those passages that disagree with, with Brian, they can now be used against him. So he's, he's got to say that it contradicts in order to get his theology in there because you're, you're just going to bring passages to him. You're like, well, what about that? What about that? And now, now he can just say, ah, it contradicts. So now from his book, page 30, he says, it seems obvious that we should accept that as Israel was in the process of receiving the revelation of Yahweh, some unavoidable assumptions were made. One of the assumptions was that Yahweh shared the violent attributes of other deities worshipped in the ancient Near East. These assumptions were inevitable, but they were wrong. For example, 
The Torah assumed that Yahweh, like all other gods, required ritual blood sacrifice. But eventually, the psalmists and the prophets take the sacred text beyond this earlier assumption. Now, this is, this is like, my, my mind just started going like, whoa, what's going on here when I started reading his book? He's actually saying that the psalms and the prophets are arguing against and trying to change what was written in the Torah. In the, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch in particular. And so um, he, goes, he goes further than this. He, he, he says that the Bible's literally having an internal fight, a battle, a debate over theology. And some authors are, are taking one side and some authors are taking another side. So um, this is new to those of us who spent, you know, a million hours in the scriptures. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> but let me read it to you. Uh, from page 14 of his book. He says, The Old Testament is often a theological debate with both sides making their case. Then there's this question. Does God require animal sacrifice? The priests and Levites say yes, and that's what we find in the Torah. But eventually the psalmists and the prophets begin to challenge this. David says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, I'm, not, I'm, I'm talking now, right? Not not reading him. He's implying that David is actually disagreeing with all of the commands for about, about animal sacrifices and stuff in the, uh, in the Torah. So uh, I'll read on, uh, quoting from Zon, page 14 again. In the Psalm, David, in this Psalm, David brashly contradicts the Torah's unambiguous laws requiring animal sacrifice. Later, Hosea claims that God doesn't want sacrifice, but mercy. Eventually, Jesus will weigh in and affirm the position of Hosea. So Jesus actually picks a side. That I, I didn't notice this when I was reading the Gospels. Like, this is this is so foreign to Christianity. This stuff is not Christian, you guys. Um, I'll read on. He says, "Does that mean the Torah was wrong about animal sacrifice?" Listen to how Ozan answers this. He says, "That would be to put too fine a point on it. Rather, the Old Testament is a journey of discovery. The Bible itself is on a quest to discover the Word of God, which he takes to be Jesus, not the Bible." Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't want to say that the Torah was wrong. But obviously, he's saying the Torah was wrong. He just doesn't like the way it sounds. So don't put that fine of a point on it, um, which, which is just a way of, I want to say what I want to say, but I don't want to be accountable for saying it. So the Bible contradicts, and Jesus tells you whose side to pick. That's what he's claiming. We're going to test this claim. First, let's look at David. So uh, David, supposedly, in uh, Psalm 40, verse 6, he made it clear that he was rejecting the, um, the, the Torah teaching that sacrifice is, is good or God requires it for any time, for any people, for any reason, right? So in Psalm 23, uh, David, a Psalm of David, he says, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. That's talking about animal sacrifices. A Psalm of David where David in the Psalms affirms animal sacrifice. Okay. So clearly there's something wrong with the way Zond is reading the text here. He's not paying attention to his own claims. He hasn't, he didn't go, let me test and read the Psalms and see if this is accurate. He just quoted one verse and the one verse it turns out is out of context. So Psalm 40 verse six, it says the following in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burn offering and sin offering. You've not required. So this is, this is the text, right? But, but it's not talking about God's overall plan for sacrifice in the, in, in the Torah. No, no, no. Verse seven, read on. Then I said, behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. 
your laws written in my heart. Sacrifice is for people who disobey. What God is asking for is obedience. That doesn't mean that sacrifice doesn't exist for disobedience, but he, what he wants is, I've delight, I'm come to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. This is speaking of Jesus, how he has come, and that's how it's quoted in the New Testament. Let me take you there, and let's see this passage being used properly in the scriptures. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, quoting the same passage, here's how the New Testament actually interprets it. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. A body. There's a reason for a body here. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, I'll read on. When he said above, you have neither um, desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning that the, the sacrifices and offerings of the Old Testament law were like a temporary measure leading us to Christ, who then becomes the ultimate sacrifice. And that's what we read. This is not about Jesus saying, get rid of sacrifice. It's about Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, the opposite of what Zond actually is teaching. I'll read on in verse 9. Uh, or verse 10, uh, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, of Jesus Christ once for all. So remember he said a body you've prepared for me? Well, that body is the body of Jesus Christ that has been offered for us in a sacrifice. Verse 11, every high priest, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. That was the shortcoming. It can't really cure your sin issues. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You see what the animals were meant to picture doing, getting rid of sin. Jesus was a sacrifice to get rid of sin. This is the atonement theory that Brian Zond thinks is repulsive and monstrous and horrific. Here it is in the text of scripture. That means that what he's demonizing is the Bible. What he's demonizing is Christianity. What he's demonizing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the worst kind of blasphemy. Um, verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So he's, it's clear in the text that, this, that Jesus has been the one sacrificed for us. But there's another claim. He also says um, in Hosea 6, 6, notice this, that it's the very verse he's quoting in Psalm 40, verse 6, that is actually refuting his theory. Always just look at the verse in context when people bring you some weird theology thing to you and you're like, I don't know about that. If you patiently and slowly look at the passage in context, it will usually correct their theology for you. So verse 6 of Hosea 6, this is where he says uh, Hosea has um, argued against the Torah because he wants, he wants there to be an internal fight in the Bible. So Hosea 6, 6, for I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So there we go. It, Hosea, according to Brian, Hosea is saying, hey, you guys, the Torah was wrong. Like what we're really saying is God just wants you to love him and to know him. Forget all this sacrificing stuff. Um, that is, however, not the context of Hosea. So, so what did I do when I read this in his book and saw Hosea 6.6 6 in the footnote? He doesn't quote it. He just says it and puts a footnote there. I just went and read Hosea. So Hosea chapter 3 just read it in context. Well, in this case, the context is kind of the whole book. But Hosea chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, we find out why Hosea was saying something negative about sacrifice. It says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. 
how uh, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Consistently in Hosea, you see the problem is that they're offering sacrifices to false idols. That's why he's like household gods and things like that and pillars. They're actually offering sacrifices to false gods. And so Hosea is saying, I'm going to put an end to that. And instead, you're going to know me. Um, it's about false sacrifices. That, that's the idea. Uh, Hosea 2.13, God says to them, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them, to false gods, Baals, and adorned herself with, the, with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So he's going to put an end to the sacrifice to false gods, not, not a permanent end to sacrifice uh, uh, an offering to God in that sense. So one more passage in Hosea, Hosea 14, verse 1 and 2. Here's like a lot of the prophets, they talk about, okay, Israel's going to have this sort of judgment will come upon them and then God will restore them later. It often ends the book by speaking about God's restoration of Israel. So here at the end of Hosea, we're speaking of the restoration. It says, Hosea 14, 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, and here's God saying, here's what you're supposed to pray to me when you return to me. Take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. They will then offer to God, not the Baals. That's the context of Hosea. Brian Zond has just either intentionally or wrongly completely butchered the meaning of Hosea and the meaning of Psalm 40 verse 6 in order to say that the Bible is having an eternal fight, a contradiction. Now, the third thing he said, because he talked about David, he talked about Hosea, but he brought Jesus into the mix. And he actually claimed that Jesus himself um, picked a side and Jesus rejected sacrifice. Now, he doesn't have much scripture support there, but let me share with you how we know this is not true about Jesus. Um, well, for one, we have Hebrews 10, right? Jesus is the sacrifice. He didn't reject it. He fulfilled it. He says, oh, there we go. I've done the job. Those are not needed because I've been the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, not a rejection, but a fulfillment. Massive difference, right? But in Mark 144, when Jesus was walking the earth before he came, before, or before he died and rose, before he made his sacrifice, he heals a man. And then he tells the man, healed of leprosy, he says to him in Mark 144, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. So he tells this guy, go to the priest, I've cleansed you, and make an offering to the priest of what Moses commanded. Well, what did Moses command? Well, that's in Leviticus 14.4. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds birds, that'd be an animal sacrifice, and cedarwood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. And he'll take the live bird. And then it just goes on to describe the specific manner of which they do the ritual uh, related with the cleansing. So Jesus, he says to the man, go and do this. Jesus commanded a guy to do an animal sacrifice in obedience to the Levitical law. The thing that Brian is saying Jesus was contradicting. So Brian's wrong about Jesus. He's wrong. In fact, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how could it be more clear that Jesus is the sacrificial animal? Isn't that the meaning of the Torah is to let us know, like, this is what this means. He's a Lamb of God. Um, he takes the beauty of the cross and he turns it into uh, a scandal of the worst possible kind and rejects it. There's a lot of, like, rhetorical deceptions um, 
that go on with, with Brian's work. I'll read one example from page 30 of his book. He says, the Bible is sent by God and inspired by God, but the Bible is not God. The Holy Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. I've heard this a lot of times before, and um, I've never met anybody who worshipped the Bible or who thought that the Bible was a member of the Trinity. Every time I hear someone say this, it's usually so they can devalue the meaning and the purpose of Scripture. I'll put it this way. If you think God is God and you think the Bible is God's words, then you're going to elevate these words pretty highly, you know? And Brian will say he has a high view of scripture. He says it multiple times in his book over and over again. He's like, I have a high view of scripture. Don't tell me I don't. I have, I just have an even higher Christology. Uh, and all that is, is poetic, uh, a poetic veneer on top of false theology. That's all that is. Um, to suggest that I have to either say either God is perfect or the Bible is perfect, but it can't, it can't be both. And they're, they're different. This is just weird thinking, right? If God has spoken, if the Bible's accurate, if it records what God has said, then it carries the authority of God. And as much as I love God, I will believe his word. That's pretty simple to me. Okay, so, right? He presents, let's recap, and then I'll give you his version of Jesus. This is where we get to the nitty gritty. This to me, and if, if I could debate Brian's on, and I would love to, if we could have like an actual debate, I don't know if that's gonna be possible, especially after I make this video. But if I could debate him, I would love it. Um, this is where the debate would focus on this issue of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Because Zahn gives us a different Jesus, a different version of Jesus. So we're going to go through that and we'll show how Jesus refutes Zahn uh, in more ways than one. Um, but, but just to kind of remind us where we've been so far. Zahn presents a straw man version of Christianity. He, he tries to paint an ugly, nasty version of, of any theology he doesn't like. And he just uses mean words, basically, uh, to make them look bad. He won't interact with actual biblical Christianity. He'll just interact with that straw man. Then he presents the idol, the, the false teaching that he has as your only alternative. Either you're that villain I just painted or you come and join me over here and be happy, nice people. Then he says the Bible contradicts itself and he's going to provide us with a solution, which is Jesus will interpret the Bible for us and show us what passages to accept and what passages to disregard or to ignore. Um, so... Uh, here's a quote from him, how he explains this a little bit. So what we do is we have to center our understanding of the scriptures in the revelation of the of the word of God that is the life of Jesus. Now, even that, though, is contained within scripture. So it's, it's rather uh, artistic what we're attempting to do here. But I think it's I think it's the proper approach. Okay, so he's, gonna, he's saying, this is going to be tough. This is going to be a wrestling thing here. But we're going to use Jesus in order to edit the scriptures. And I use the word edit on purpose. He's going to use it too in just a minute. I'll read from his book. Um, uh, I'm going to use Jesus to edit the scriptures. Uh, and it'll be tricky because we, what we know about Jesus is in the scriptures. And that's why it requires like an artistic approach. Um, I hope I don't have to explain how dangerous that is. What will happen in the end, I, I predict you will come up with a version of Jesus that looks just like you because even the text where Jesus is written about, you're going to have to edit that too. Uh, because Jesus is consistent with the Old Testament. He's going to he's going to affirm the Old Testament that it's inspired by God. So you, you have to like edit Jesus to get the Jesus that you want that you can then use to edit the Bible. And that's exactly what he does. Um, so here we go. Here's one of his major go-to verses. I'm going to read it to you and do like a good Bible study on it. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. 
And then I'll share with you what Brian says about it from his book. So it says, and he came to Nazareth, Jesus did, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he reads this in the synagogue. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what happens next is pretty neat because Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah 61, um, but he leaves out the rest of the passage. He just rolls up the scroll and he stops reading right there. The next phrase would have been in the day of the vengeance of our God. And then it would have said to comfort those and it goes on. Uh, But Jesus stops right there. And now we usually take this to mean, hey, um, Jesus is saying in his first coming, it's all about God's grace. It's all about bringing forgiveness and salvation to mankind. But there is a day of vengeance coming, but that is delayed. God is long suffering, not willing that any should perish. The day of judgment's delayed because Jesus is, is giving us now this time of God's grace and acceptance, but it's still coming. It's just delayed. That would be my understanding. In verse 20, here's how they react when he reads this. He rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Um, now, once they started questioning his identity, this is just Joseph's son, right? They're, they're questioning who he is and can he really be the one fulfilling this? Then they start to reject him, but they did not reject his reading of the scripture, nor of him saying it was fulfilled. Brian interprets them getting mad at Jesus a moment later as they rejected the idea that Jesus wouldn't include the phrase and the, and the day of the vengeance of our God, that, that the people in Nazareth were angry because they were so bloodthirsty. But the text itself says they weren't bothered by his quoting of the scripture. They were bothered by his identity of just Joseph's son, and then they wouldn't believe that in who he was. Um, so let me read to you what Zahn says in his book about Luke 4. He says, did you catch what happened? Did you see what Jesus did? While reading from the familiar passage of Isaiah 61, Jesus stopped mid-sentence and rolled up the scroll. It would be like someone singing the national anthem and ending with, or the land of the free. Everybody would be waiting for, and the home of the brave. Jesus didn't finish the line. Jesus omitted the bit about the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus edited Isaiah like this. And I'll, I actually took a screen capture of his book. This is what, it, what he puts in his book. Yeah, I know, you can't read my writing. Nobody can but me. Um, so Jesus edited Isaiah like this, and then he puts up the text of Isaiah with a line through the phrase and the day of vengeance of our God to imply that Jesus was actually redacting, like taking away from the scripture to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Cut that part out. Jesus is like, I'm removing that part. Jesus just stopped reading, guys. It was a partial quote, not a full quote. And it was for a purpose and a reason, but it was not editing. Uh, But that's what Brian Zahn says. Why does he say it? Because he needs Jesus to edit the scripture for him. His version of Jesus has got to help him overcome the fact that the Bible refutes his theology. Um, It is crazy stuff. Um, Let me read to you more from uh, page 14 of his book. He says this, People have never seen God until they see Jesus. I agree. But then he goes on. Every other portrait of God from whatever source including the Bible, is subordinate to the revelation of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God, the logic of God in the form of human flesh. Christians are to believe in the perfect, infallible, inerrant word of God, and his name is Jesus. 
Now, you can completely believe in Jesus and also believe the Bible's true, but he thinks that you've got to kind of pick between the two because he wants to create this straw man and a false idol to embrace instead of it. He goes on and says, the Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. I'm quoting from his book. The Bible is not the perfect revelation of God. Jesus is. Jesus is the only perfect theology. Perfect theology is not a book. Perfect theology is the life that Jesus lived. Now, some of you, that sounds familiar. Because that phrase, perfect theology is Jesus, um, that came from this guy. Jesus Christ is perfect theology. He's perfect theology. It is theologically immoral to allow anything, any revelation about God that contradicts what you see in the person of Jesus, to allow that to trump your concept of what God is like. That was Bill Johnson. And many of you know my, my video on Bill Johnson. I deal with his teaching in great detail. I'm seeing echoes of Bill Johnson in his, in his teachings. I'm not saying they're the same, but they're part of this, a similar camp when it comes to the Old Testament, the New Testament, and feeling like they can create new theology by taking a, a, a sort of hijacked, edited version of Jesus that allows you to then edit the text of Scripture. That is, that is exactly what Bill Johnson has done in his stuff. And it's the same thing that Brian Zond has done. And um, I think it's a trend and I think we need to be aware of it, which is one of the reasons why I decided to make this video. Um, okay, I'm going to move. I got to move ahead a little bit. I want to talk just to kind of come to the conclusion here. I want to deal with Zond's version of Jesus versus Jesus. So I'm going to tell you what Zond says, and then we're going to listen to quotes from Jesus where he refutes that or read them, I should say. So, Zahn says that Jesus comes to edit the Bible, that Jesus actually changes the text of scriptures and that he was doing that in the, in the Luke passage. Um, well, I decided to look up a passage in Luke, since it's Luke where Jesus is recorded as, according to Zahn, editing the Bible. What, is, what else does Luke say about Jesus? Does G, in Luke, does Jesus say about the Bible? He says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. How do you think that Jesus would feel about the idea of editing. I don't think you'd feel very good about it. In Matthew 5, 17, a passage Zond actually quotes, but not, not properly, but he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Christ, his view of, of scripture is this, this idea of the, um, it's God's word, and it's been given and it will be fulfilled. It's to be fulfilled, but it's not to be um, edited, put it that way. <laughs> um, Zahn, he has a whole chapter of his book that says that Jesus closes the book on vengeance. And he goes into great detail, uh, basically saying that Jesus, Jesus is not into vengeance. And it's man's bloodlust that has us desiring any kind of wrath from God to fall on anyone ever. But this is not Jesus, right? First Thessalonians 5, it says... Um, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God and for, for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant you relief to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven and listen to what Jesus does when he's revealed from heaven the future judgment day that Jesus speaks of um, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. That Jesus is coming in judgment. Now, Zond, if you listen to the way he talks, you would read that and you'd think, oh, Jesus, you're petty. You're petty. God's wrath is righteous, you guys. Even his wrath is righteous. If you're not comfortable with it, it's because something's wrong with the way you're processing reality. God is good. God is just. He's not like man. His wrath is perfect. His wrath is right and proper and appropriate. He holds it back. He's long-suffering. He reaches out for salvation to everyone to be saved, but he will deal with sin and he will deal with those who reject Christ and who die in their sin. Um, that's what he's told us. Whether you like it or not, that's Christianity. Luke one thirty-two says of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And that is not the passage I was trying to read. <laughs> was it 11.32? Yep, it was 11.32. Uh, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. Jesus speaking here, right? At the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. Jesus speaking to the, to the cities he's preaching at, and he tells them that there's a future judgment day. It's not now. It's future, and it's judgment, and they're going to be condemned. Like, this is Jesus. He doesn't close the book on vengeance in the sense of good godly vengeance, God's vengeance. Man's vengeance against man, taking your own vengeance, absolutely, the book's closed on that. That's easy. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's wrath. Um, so Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them. Jesus speaking here about um, the issue of did these people die because of their sin? Um, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This passage I've heard quoted by people to say that Jesus is saying, you know, people aren't dying because because they have sin. Rather, Jesus is saying people all have sin issues and there is a future judgment coming and they all need to repent and don't be thinking, oh, bad stuff happened to him because he's worse than me. It'd be like, it's God's grace that it hasn't happened to me already. That's, look, Jesus presents these incredibly strong messages of God's incredible love and man's incredible sin, of God's incredible grace and forgiveness and God's coming wrath on those who do not respond to it. These are extreme things, but Jesus teaches them both. Um, and to, ch to change it and call yourself Christianity is just to be in a cult. Luke 21, 22, it says, for these are days, uh, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Did, Jesus is talking about the future time of coming judgment. And he says, it's the days of vengeance to fulfill what was written. Whereas Zahn thinks J Jesus is going to edit the vengeance out of the old Testament. Jesus goes, there's a coming day when all that vengeance, it's going to happen and it's going to all be fulfilled. So, this is obviously not Jesus, not the Zond of Jesus. Rather, this is the person Jesus uh, Zond is demonizing. Zond demonizes Jesus. His own words come against Christ now, uh, ultimately. Oh, there's a lot more scriptures I could share with you. Matthew 25. There's a bunch of stuff in Matthew 25. Good homework for you. Revelation 19.11, uh, where he talks about uh, seeing uh, uh, heaven open and a white horse and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
Zahn calls it a metaphor, but won't really tell you quite quite, quite what it's a metaphor of. Um, oh, there's actually a couple more I've got to share with you. I knew I was going to go a little longer with this, but it's too important not to. So the Zond version of Jesus would never, ever use what Zond calls in on page three of his book, evangelism by terrorism. Um, that's that whole sinners in the hand of an angry God thing. But basically telling people that there's judgment to come, that it, you that that's terrorism to do that. Well, is that true? Or is that just a straw man where you're just demonizing what's actually godly preaching? Um, well, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he's killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Would Zahn demonize Jesus here? Or would he stop long enough to realize? Jesus is giving us a godly warning. Hey, you're worried about what men will do to you? You should care about what God thinks. Man can only touch your body. God, he deals with your soul. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Um, in addition, uh, last one here, John twelve thirty six, And this is where Zahn tells us that Jesus is fixing the unfortunate and inevitable mistakes that the Old Testament writers made. Well, in John 12, 36, um, oh, not John 12, 36. I didn't write the scripture down. It might be Luke. It's Mark. Mark 12, 36. David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And check this out. Jesus here, quoting the psalm, says that the psalm was in, was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David declares in the Holy Spirit. And it's specifically a passage about the enemies of Jesus being put under his feet. So, yeah. I mean, we, I'll do a video one of these days on what Jesus' view of the scripture was, but I think I've, I've covered this stuff enough. Um, who is this Jesus that Brian Zond has been showing us this whole time? Well, listen to how Brian decides what he's going to believe about the Old Testament, which passages he'll reject and what he'll accept. Listen carefully to what he says here, because it turns out that Brian Zond's Jesus is actually Brian Zond. Well, it's, it's all because of Jesus. So I never go wandering around in the Old Testament without Jesus. So at any given moment, I can pause and I can say, Jesus, what do you think of that? And Jesus can say to me, Brian, what do you think of that? Well, it seems to me, Jesus, that in the light of what you taught us, that we have to rethink this passage. And I think Jesus says, amen. He says to Jesus, what do you think? Jesus says to him, what do you think? And that, I think, is exactly what happens, right? He just talks to himself and decides, I, no, I, no, I don't accept that. And he's become his own filter. The filter is this. Here is, as I meant to show you this today, at this point in the stream, Jesus Zond. This is this is the Jesus of Brian Zond. He just happens to be a pacifist, just like Brian Zond is. He happens to agree with the same political views that Brian has. He happens to think the same thing, the same kinds of people are messed up and Pharisees and hypocritical. He has the same view of, of you know, whether it's Islam or whatever. It's just Jesus Zond. That's what, that's what he's got. That's what he's got. Um, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Anybody who takes his, adopts his form of Christianity will love their version of Christianity because it will be their version of Christianity. Their fabricated, fake, cult version of Christianity. Now, 
before I close, I want to share one last thing because uh, I think that Zond is very... I don't use these words lightly, you guys. These are accurate terms I'm using now. He's incredibly manipulative in his book and um, never encounters actual Christianity, never engages with it, just demonizes and manipulates. And I kind of started to feel like he knows you know, really what he's doing. So listen to what he says because he knows how to manipulate and he describes it in this video. I've talked about this. about if, if, As a speaker, I know if I want to have a real intense emotional get everybody on board we're all excited the easiest way for me to do that is to begin to vilify some common enemy and we come together in great unity it does work it actually works and if people don't know better they'll go oh that's so anointed oh finally he's taking a stand praise God hallelujah that's the Holy Ghost no it's the devil but we don't recognize it as such that's exactly what he does. He knows how he find an enemy, label them. In fact, here's how he feels about labels. He says, because in, in, he was asked if he was a pacifist. And he says, first of all, I don't like labels. This is on his, um, his website, Brian's on, I think it's .com or something. Kierkegaard was right when he said, when you label me, you negate me. Just call someone a pacifist and you can dismiss them with a wave of your hand. Labels are often a way to avoid thinking. Oh, he's one of those. Case closed mind closed. Well, let me read to you in closing. This is actually closing. I'm actually going to be done. <laughs> this is from page 141 at the end of his book. And this is when he's talking about hell. And look at how he labels those who disagree with him. Like me. This is how he labels me. And those of you who know me, you know this is not me. Um, he says, I agree with everything, page 141, everything that Jesus believed about hell. But it's his version of Jesus, right? But that doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that smug, mean-spirited, self-righteous, Bible-thumping know-it-alls believe about hell. He knows what he's doing, guys. He's like, label him, and then you don't have to think about him anymore. They're the bad guy. So he calls us smug, mean-spirited, self-righteous, Bible-thumping know-it-alls. I think I take Bible-thumping as a compliment. Man, I'm a Bible-thumper. That's the thing. you got to trust that. I'm just saying, hey, remember it. That's, that's a compliment in my book. <laughs> I'll be a Bible-thumper. Um, anyway, then he goes on and listen to the hypocrisy of this. Uh, he says, I'm very leery of making claims of certitude about precisely what is meant by hell and exactly who goes there. I regard it as, hear me here. This is very important. You listen to this. I regard it as extraordinarily dangerous and detrimental to the soul to go through life convinced that everyone except people like me are going to wind up in hell. Right? Zahn's like, Hey, you're, you're exclusivist. You know, you, you shouldn't be that way. That's so messed up. That is, <laughs> that is dangerous and detrimental to your soul to think that you know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell but then read on the next sentence in his book he says that must surely be one of the back alleys to hell you can't have certainty about who's going to hell but guess who does brian zahn does that must surely be one of the back alleys to hell if you want to find your way to hell a good way to go about it would be to assume that everyone unlike you is headed there which is exactly what brian zahn does in his book, he assumes that everyone who doesn't agree with him is a, quote, smug, mean-spirited, self-righteous, Bible-thumping know-it-all, and that we're addicted to violence, and that we have a bloodlust, and yada, yada, yada. Shame is his tool, uh, just just twisting the scriptures, and it is it is it doesn't get any worse than this, guys. Brian Zahn is not just wrong about some theology. He is preaching a false gospel. He is preaching a false Jesus. He is attacking the Bible, and he's doing it in the name of Christ. And uh, 
I don't want to stand before God when the actual judgment day and the vengeance of God comes and be in his shoes. So I hope that that's been beneficial for you guys. Um, it was not fun reading this book. I don't recommend anybody to read it <laughs> at all, ever. But hopefully you're equipped to deal with not only what he said in his book, but this kind of manipulation tactic. Because these things are always... They, they come in like forms. You know, once you learn one person's tactic, you get it from another teacher, a false teacher, you get it from another source and a different source, and you're kind of equipped and prepared to answer it, even though it's a different guy and slight variations. But yet, yeah, there it is. All right, well, that's it for the live stream. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. I uh, do plan on doing a live stream next week, and after that, I'm not sure what will happen for the rest of December. I will try to keep you informed. So, uh, Lord bless you. And uh, remember to check the context. <laughs> so important. <laughs>